Welcome to Booked, where two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Snedden. Tonight, we are going to be reviewing um, a first for Booked, a book written by a former president of the United States. Yeah. Um, we're also going to be joined by Rob Hart, uh, who is a longtime friend of the podcast. And uh, here's a little bit about Rob Hart. Rob is the author of the Ash McKenna series at Polis Books, which wraps up with Potter's Field in July 2018. Other entries include New York, nominated for an Anthony Award for Best First Novel, as well as City of Rose, South Village, and The Woman from Prague, which was named a hot summer read by Publishers Weekly and the Boston Globe. He is the co-author of Scott Free, a bookshots novella with James Patterson, and 2019 will see the release of his first standalone, The Warehouse from Crown. He's published more than 20 short stories, including Takeout, which will appear in the 2018 edition of Best American Mystery Stories. He lives in New York City. That is a polished and very, very fresh bio for Rob Hart, I'm going to say. I worked very hard on it. <laughs> well, uh, welcome. I think it's been quite a while since we've had you on the pod. Have we had you? Yeah, we, we, were, we, were, we definitely interviewed you uh, in yeah, the past, yeah, but it's yeah. been so long, I don't even remember it. That that's got to be three years ago, maybe. Well, maybe it was more. for, was it around New York? I think it was around the second one. Uh, I think it was around City of Rose. City of Rose, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't remember. It, huh. Yeah, definitely a while ago, but it's it's good to be back. Uh, we missed you. It's good to have you. We have more bios though, so uh, let's get moving on this. We're going to talk to <laughs> Rob later about the warehouse, which I'm really excited to hear more about. But we're going to put that off uh, until we're done talking about what I believe is uh, is the New York Times bestseller um, this week. Here is the bio for Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton was elected president of the United States in 1992, and he served until 2001. This is such a weird bio. To read. <laughs> <laughs> After leaving the White House, he established the Clinton Foundation, which helps improve global health and increase opportunity for girls and women, reduce childhood obesity and preventable diseases, create economic opportunity and growth, and address the effects of climate change. He is the author of a number of nonfiction works, including My Life, which was number a number one international bestseller. This is his first novel. All right. Um, Probably the most accomplished bio we've ever read. I mean, President of the United States is really hard to top. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's only there's only what like three people living. That it's can like, do that? Yeah, yeah, this is horror award, then president of the United States, and then <laughs> um, should I do the? Does it make sense to do the Patterson? No, it bio? absolutely doesn't. Right. James right. Patterson has written four thousand books. There's James Patterson. There you bio. go. Um, looking at all right, so uh, I'm look I'm on Amazon right now, and I'm just looking at the ranks for the president is missing because you mentioned. It's probably the number one book. It's the number two book uh, in like overall book, you know, books. Uh, it's it's number two. What is it second to? All right, I'm going to top 100 right now. Oh, it's Kitchen Confidential updated edition. It's because oh, yeah. Anthony All Bourdain right. just, All right, yeah. just died. That makes sense. That's um, for anybody who's listening. Not in the week that we're recording this, Anthony Bourdain died like yesterday. So it would totally make sense that that book is currently ripping up the charts. Rest in peace. Yep. Um, what a what a downer. What else? Do you, should I, I guess I can <laughs> do a synopsis. Bring us out of this. Thanks, Rob. Yes, right. let's do a synopsis. <laughs> um, the president is missing. Confronts a threat so huge that it jeopardizes not just. Did I read that right? That's a weird way to start a synopsis. I'm going to start that over again. The president is missing confronts a threat so huge. I can't get over this. It's such a weird way to. <laughs> I'm leaving this in because it's so weird. Um, 
the president is missing confronts a threat that's so huge that it jeopardizes not just Pennsylvania Avenue and Wall Street, but all of America. Uncertainty and fear grip the nation. There are whispers of cyber terror and espionage and a traitor in the cabinet. That's the presidential cabinet for anybody who doesn't see the capital C that I'm looking at. Even the president himself becomes a suspect, and then he disappears from public view. Said over the course of three days, the president is missing, missing sheds a stunning light upon the inner workings and vulnerabilities of our nation, filled with information that only a former commander-in-chief could know. This is the most, uh, most authentic, terrifying novel to come along in many years. That is such a weird... Can we talk about that synopsis? Sure. Yeah. It's weird. <laughs> it, it, I couldn't get my mind around it. Obviously, I didn't read the synopsis before I read the book. Um, but I don't know. That's just a strange... And I, I don't know how much, like, the the uh, only a commander-in-chief could know thing. Because, like, would, would he reveal stuff that, you know, only a president is supposed to know? I guess it gives, like, an authentic feel to... Like talking about the White House and stuff, but I hope people don't think that they're learning secrets about the White House. It's weird that you say that because very little of this book even takes place in the White House, and the stuff that does doesn't feel at all proprietary. I mean, it's nothing that None. you couldn't get from watching like an episode of, <laughs> you know, The West Wing or, you know, Designated Survivor or any other show that's taking place in the White House. Yeah, I think the the one detail that kind of stuck out to me is like, oh, that's kind of cool, is uh, at one point they were taking him through like the escape tunnel uh, underneath the White House. And then they talked about how it was like sort of like a, a zigzag pattern to like mm. dissipate fire or blasts. And I was like, oh, well, that's kind of a cool detail. You know, um, I don't know. I, and obviously anything that they put in the book, I'm sure had to at least be, you know, vetted or, or approved. Right. You know, there's probably plenty of like secret, cool presidential shit that they can't put in the book because that would be, you know, compromising security. Yeah. But they have to make it sound sexy. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Would have been nice if they would have came clean on aliens. I keep waiting for someone to come clean on aliens. See, actually, I think Trump kind of proves the fact that there there there's no evidence because he would have told us like unless <laughs> someone was smart enough to not tell him. I had see I had that conversation with someone like a week ago and my thought was maybe they just didn't tell him. Yeah. Maybe just, when he asked, they were like, no, no, there's really no aliens. And he's like, ah, shit. They just ran around like yeah. hiding, hiding shit. So he couldn't find it. <laughs> I could see that happening. Yeah. That'd be a very fair way to handle it. Let's, um, you know, <laughs> let's let's start let's start somewhere um, a little different from this. And so before we get into the book, I was pleasantly um, surprised. I guess I thought this book would be a little heavier politically um, than it was. So you know, we we kind of just joked about the current president of the United States and the political climate out there. I felt like this would be a lot more heavy-handed. In um, in today's politics, um, than it was um, it, it, a little bit at the end, like at the very end, but through the course of this book, I didn't. I, I just I was pleasantly surprised to find that it wasn't terribly partisan. As a matter of fact, I'm not even sure. Thinking back, that the president that we're following was assigned a party. He was not. I feel like I agree. It was very intentionally like it could go either way, and either like to the. For the sake of you just kind of like filling your own politics into it or just to keep the kind of partisan feel out of it altogether. Yeah, I kind of think on a book like this, you know, if you if if the president's a Democrat, then then, you know, you're automatically going to turn off the other party. Like Republicans are going to be like, fuck this. I'm not reading about a Democrat. So, yeah. 
you know, it like it, it, it. I think I was like a quarter of a way through when I realized that they hadn't named parties. That it was just like you know they kept on referring because like the um, the the speaker of the house or the 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 speaker the the senate whichever whichever one like is like a minor sort of adversary in the book and they keep on referring it to him as the opposing party as opposed to like Republican or Democrat. Yeah, yeah, the speaker. Yeah, that little weasel. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah it was very intentionally non it was generic parties there was no yeah i mean i I, th- I think if you kind of read into it a little bit the president does read slightly as more liberal and more of a democrat but that also could be just you know me putting my own read on it like maybe a maybe a hardcore conservative republican is like this is like a true blue republican right here and what they did and thinking about it they made him like former military and they made him like a pretty badass former military which usually for me is a complaint about like books that are action like this guy you know because he was in the military has like the exact skill set that he needs to get out of the blah blah blah. um but like making him former military and facing um decisions that are like military action and him having more of a soft approach to it wouldn't necessarily mean that it's it's part of his politics it would mean that he has war experience and is making decisions based on that yeah because because there was a little bit of mccain there too where you know he was a pow so he had been tortured and he came back and his shoulder was all messed up and he didn't want to you know start unnecessary conflicts or be a dickhead so you know there there, (laughs) there was definitely sort of pulling from that a little yep for sure yeah i don't have any complaints about the president i I thought the same thing i thought well this is pretty convenient right like he's got all the special forces training and stuff but um, that type of person could easily end up in the White House. So it was a little more realistic than when it's like, you know, a librarian in a book who happened to be special forces until he <laughs> right. came home and then has to use his special, you know, certain set of skills to, to overcome adversity. In book, a book thieves. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, um, uh, so yeah, the story kicks off with, uh, to give it a little bit of a, a little bit of background, uh, the president is uh, in the middle of what uh, will likely become uh, impeachment proceedings um, because of uh, uh, due in large part to what may have been his collaboration with one of the top terrorists um, in the world. Uh, And uh, obviously we find out through the course of the book what that was all about, but more urgently um, is that he has been passed a a message um, that A, implicates a, a traitor in the White House, but more importantly, that someone has information on the worst catastrophe to happen um, in the U.S. ever. Um, and he is essentially um, forced out of the White House on his own um, to meet with this person. So the, the title comes from, uh, the, from, from that particular situation where the president actually has to get in disguise and go without uh, Secret Service and meet somebody that is going to give him information regarding um, a terrorist attack. Yeah, that's where it got a little bit National Treasure for my tastes. I don't know if you guys seen the <laughs> National Treasure movies. Have not. Um, yeah, I got nothing. So, like, um, I think, so reading reading the whole, like, it's very much toward the beginning of the book, reading the whole part where he has to ditch the secret service and go out in disguise on his own, like without any accompaniment, like that would literally never, there's no, there's no reality in which that could ever possibly happen. But it made me think of in, um, uh, you guys aren't Nick Nick Cage fans, apparently in the second national treasure, I think 
uh, in the first one, the whole thing was like, I'm going to steal the Declaration of Independence. And there was this whole like, you know, t- treasure map thing going on. But in the second one, um, in order to do whatever weird treasure map thing they had to do, he had to kidnap the president. And so like there was this whole plan about how they were he was going to get the president alone outside the Secret Service and stuff. But like, God, that would just never literally that would never happen. Never. I had some questions about that, too. I, I, I've seen and or read varying things. I think the Secret Service will actually protect the president against his will. Mm-hmm. Isn't that like a thing? Like the Secret Service will just like be like, nope, you can't do this. It's too dangerous and actually grab and, and subdue the president if necessary. You know, I don't know. I mean, I kind of I kind of got the sense that that didn't bother me as much because I kind of felt like he I, I think he kind of like had one guy he was talking to and this guy was like kind of a buddy and he was like, no, you need to understand. And, you know, I also figure like he's the president, so he's the commander in chief, which means they have to listen to him. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know <laughs> what the Secret Service um, decorum is, but, um, you know, that that never bugged me. Uh, I kind of. The, I, I felt like the, the entire first half of the book just felt a little weird and kind of wonky for me, you know, like I and it's kind of hard to put my finger on, you know, it uh, I, I do like how they they sort of handled him getting out of the White House and kind of getting into disguise, though. Yeah, for sure. I mean, for the as much as I didn't believe it, it, it was written well. <laughs> My take on on that whole thing is it's almost like that was contrived. Like you could have told this story without having him leave the White House or have him leave the White House with like proper security. Right. Because for for listeners, for people who haven't read this, um, a woman is allowed into the White House and, and she basically presents uh, a compelling argument that they have the information that the president needs. Um, and she is allowed to leave the White House and then the president has to like leave and meet this other party. Um, in order to to gain further information. And then, quite honestly, that goes awry. And the president is is on the run for a couple of chapters. But then he's really back in the security of of the Secret Service, as a matter of fact, or other world leaders. (laughs) So, sorry about that. I just banged the shit out of my desk. (laughs) So essentially, um, you know, the president is missing. Um, He's really only missing for a very brief period of time, like, 10% 10% of the novel, 15% of the novel, because people know where he is, or at least some people do, even if the American public doesn't. And I guess this all could have been done w- without the allure of him, you know, getting into disguise. I don't think it hurt the story any. I was just <laughs> trying to figure out if there was a, a, a reason, a, a story, well, you know, an thinking, important reason. For... Thinking about it, though, like, the, the fact that we're making such a big deal of him, like, being away, it does sell the gravity of the situation, I guess. It does make it seem like wow, this is a big deal if he's going against, like, everything you're supposed to do as a president. Like, there has to be something that's, like, critically urgent going on. Um, so it does sell the gravity of the matter, I guess. Can we can we address a situ- like a key? I, I was explaining this book to someone um, a, a, through texts, I think, yesterday or the day before. And they're like, so did you find the president yet? And I was like, well, it's from his perspective, so... <laughs> <laughs> like we never lost the president and it was so it's a weird thing that it's called the president is missing but we're, we're we follow the president the entire time did you guys think about that at all not even a little bit yeah i kind of feel like this was a, a lot a lot of this book is riding on that title because that's a good title that's yeah. that's a big dramatic title and uh you know and, and again he's really only missing for like a little teeny tiny part of it i mean more to the american public but like we know where he is he's he's hiding out in some 
cabin in the woods. So, yeah, yeah it was, it's it's <laughs> it's funny, but it does again. Like it, he, I guess he technically does go missing. So that at least for a very small amount of the book, that that's accurate. So he's facing another problem. He is uh, presented with. Uh, can we? I mean, we can be a little spoilery, right? On this, mm, sure. Yeah. Okay. So he's presented with with a with a terrorist attack that can be stopped through the use of computers. We'll say that. Um, but he's facing another issue: is that um, because of the way this problem came to him, he knows that a member of his cabinet, a member of uh, of of the six people. Uh, that could have known about this, one of them leaked information to a terrorist organization. So it's kind of twofold. We've got to stop the threat, but we also have to figure out who uh, in or close to the White House, because there are some people who aren't necessarily White House people that are involved in this, but it's like the the head of the CIA, or I think it was the head of the FBI, you know, who also had uh, was privy to this information. So on, on one front, he's fighting the very real threat that's coming um, in one day, essentially. We get about 24 hours, I think, um, on this. And then, uh, you know, he's trying to figure out who in his cabinet is, is playing uh, with the terrorists. I think that about sums it up. Well, also, though, you forgot about his rare blood disease. Oh, right. (laughs) (laughs) Which that just like that. That was the only thing about the book where it was like, okay, so he also has a rare blood disease on top of like and his wife is also like recently deceased. And it's just that felt like, you know, that felt too manufactured for me where it was like, okay, this is just one more like, you know, plate on top of the pile of plates. And now this thing is going to come crashing down. Where, and it's not something that really plays a huge role in the book, like maybe a little bit in the beginning, but like, I really thought that they were setting this up that like, he was going to get like really physically fucked up. And I think he like passes out once or something, you know, Mm -hmm. like, you know, it it creates, I guess, a little bit of attention. Like there, there, there's a car accident scene and it's like, oh, this obviously can't be good for a guy who like has subdural bruising or whatever. But, uh, yeah, that, that just kind of felt like a bit much. <laughs> you bring up an interesting point because you're right. At about the 30% mark of that book, we forget all about it. Like, nothing more comes of it. And then I think it's mentioned again, like, like towards, towards the end of the book. Um, so, yeah, it was a plot point that was essentially dropped um, early on. And, yes, yeah, he, he, is, he, is, he has a lot of challenges he's, he's facing. I mean, I was expecting the book to be pretty trope heavy and, and like if this, if the tropes were a car, this thing is fully loaded. Like there's nothing that he didn't, you know, he checked every box. I feel like, um, you know, the dead wife, the former, like the military background, um, you know, there's going to be someone that betrayed, you know, someone betrayed him, like everything that, you know, the rare disease, everything that could have happened, you know, the daughter studying, uh, in college in Europe, like there's nothing that they didn't use really. You know, th- this is an interesting point because c- I've been thinking about this a lot recently, um, where, you know, we call them tropes and, and trope, you know, I think sometimes can, can kind of be considered like a dirty word, you know, yeah. because we don't. Uh, like as writers, we don't want to write the same shit over and over again. But I'm also starting to wonder if some tropes maybe we should think more of as like reader comfort zones, you know, kind of these shorthand things that kind of because because I mean, what, what Patterson is doing, his whole thing is he writes really, you know, he, he writes like cupcake fiction. 
it's like it's like watching an episode of Law and, Or Law and Order. Like even if yeah. you've seen it a hundred times, like it just kind of washes over you and you enjoy it because it's hitting all these boxes. Mm -hmm. And there's like some satisfaction and there's some comfort in seeing those boxes get hit. So I didn't feel I didn't feel so much tropey as I kind of felt like I can see how I'm barreling through this book so quickly because I have to do less work because a lot of this framework feels so familiar to me, you know? Sure. Absolutely. It's a very yeah, interesting and point. And it definitely works. Like, um, you don't want to have, if that's the outcome you're looking for, um, you, you want to give your reader those little, like kind of like milestones along the way or whatever, because otherwise you have just reinvent writing a story every time. They're going to be like, I have no idea what the hell's going on. So, I'm not saying necessarily it was a bad thing, but that was it was obvious that those types of things were definitely present. Yeah. I remember um, when James Patterson uh, started to kind of diverge from his core group of readers. So he had written all those Alex Cross books and was wildly successful, and each one went to the top of the New York Times bestseller list. And then I remember, uh, again, because of my girlfriend, um, uh, the book was called something like Nicholas's letters to Susanna or something. I was like, well, this sounds like a, like a romance book. Like this guy's gone in a completely different direction. And my thought was like, how are his fans going to perceive, um, his change from writing mysteries to writing that. And then shortly after that, he came out with that young adult book, maximum overdrive or whatever it was. It was about an Island where they were genetically modifying kids and like a couple of them escape or something. So he was going in some different directions. I think this goes to what um, a little bit to what Rob was saying is that that might be uncomfortable. So if you know your audience and you know that this is the kind of stuff they like, I mean, the smart play is to keep writing the kind of stuff they like. And then if you, you know, kind of, leave that behind and either flip and go to romance or, or flip and start going to like really emotion heavy writing versus um, cupcake fiction, by the way, is a great term. So we'll go with that. You know, when you're going from <laughs> cupcake fiction, you could alienate. I mean, the people that are putting you at the top of the New York times bestseller list, not immediately because your new book comes out and all the same people buy it. But after two or three of those, you could potentially see that go the other way. I don't know how much more we can talk about story with like dipping it without dipping into like real heavy spoilers. Um, it, it, to be completely honest, I think because of the type of audience that he's writing for, since we were just talking about that, I don't think that it's a very complicated story. And it probably doesn't take much ma imagination to kind of decide or figure out or guess what direction the story goes in. So um, I, I, is there much more about the story you think we need to talk about? I found it interesting that he could gather like the the, the heads of like, you know, four or five of the most powerful countries inside like 48 hours in like a non-disclosed location. I thought that was a little bit of a stretch. I, I, I appreciated that they sort of made Russia the bad guy without making Russia the bad guy. <laughs> you know, like they, they, they definitely kind of took like a little bit of a safe pot shot at Russia, which made me pretty happy. Like, like there, there were these little sort of, and you can see them. Like, I think there was a reference to fake news at one point and, there was something else, and, and I, I should have like written it down or highlighted rigging it. But, like, elections. Were, rigging elections, rigging yeah, elections. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There were yep. a couple of little like in jokes where it's like, oh, you've been reading the Times lately, then you get this one. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, that was cool. Um, I guess it bears mentioning that there was that um, the main terrorist organization. I don't know if there's a lot of fruit to to bear there, but I just thought the the name Sons of Jihad was really lame, and like I expected it to be like a motorcycle TV show. 
Um, <laughs> I don't know. Well, also, and the bad guy's name was Suleiman Sindarak, Sindaruk, mm-hmm. which every time I saw that name, I'm like, none of these letters belong together. Like, <laughs> like this just doesn't work for me. I mean, and, and maybe this is like the, this is like the, the, the equivalent of like Joe Smith and whatever part of the world this guy was from. But uh, yeah, Suleiman Sindaruk. Yeah. Speaking of names, um, the assassin, the pregnant woman assassin named Bach. And you figure out toward the end that her like her and her brother are named after like like the classical composer like family right or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yep. That came out. Of, that was that wasn't necessary. <laughs> I so okay so so this is a spoiler, but I'm gonna say it anyway because I just think it bears uh, noting. I, 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 my, my patience is spreading a little bit thin with like, you know, hardcore female characters who were sexually abused in their past. And that's yeah. why they're hardcore. I like, that was the one thing that I was kind of eye rolly at. And I'm like, no, like there's reader comfort zones and there's sort of like, there's this, which should not be a comfort zone because this is not comfortable. Mm-hmm. We had a conversation, um, with David James Keaton about that when um, I believe we talked about his book Last Projector um, because part of the the story he wrote was kind of taking on that exact thing and and making fun of how people use that as a crutch but he also used it in the book but almost as an example but like also to kind of like flip it around um, so yeah that's been I'm sure that's been something that's like kind of sim- like boiling to the top I think in in conversation and with authors. Probably over the last couple of years, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I think there's more sensitivity to that now, and I think that people are trying. Like, I mean, personally, I'm trying to get away from like the damsel in distress stuff because yeah. it's just. But, but besides the fact that it feels kind of played out, like it's just, it's not the kind of thing I'm interested in reading anymore. Like I've seen that too many times. So, I, I think we're at a point now where where we have to sort of like look inward and challenge ourselves to. To again, like you know, find find the comfort zones that we're comfortable with, but stuff that you know isn't as as sort of rooted in violence against women, like borderline exploitation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. kinda. Yeah. I guess that's a strong word, but it get, gets the point across. It does. <laughs> yeah, and then the names were just kind of pointless. I was gonna go back to those names; are kind of pointless. Yeah, anyway, Bach. Anyway, yeah. When she's listening to that music and playing it for the baby, come on, just kill people. <laughs> Do your job, lady. Do your job. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I guess the other thing that that merits conversation, um, maybe even before the wrap up. Uh, so this isn't. I don't want to say like it's not easy information to find, but I like this book was seems to have been by and large written by a third person. <laughs> So I'm going to do another bio <laughs> here, and maybe we can suss this out a little bit. David Ellis is a judge and an Edgar Award-winning author of nine novels of crime fiction, as well as five books co-authored with James Patterson. In December 2014, Dave was sworn in as the youngest-serving justice of the Illinois Appellate Court for the First District. He currently lives outside Chicago with his wife and three children. So I don't know how many names you can put on the cover of a book. Um, but I, I mean, I'm thinking if you if you had to pick two of the three, you probably got the ones that are going to get you. I was at Meyer, the grocery store, the other day, and as I was leaving, there's a giant poster on the um, for this on the like security thing, you know, that you walk through to make sure you didn't steal anything. 
Um, so, you know, this this is getting played in, in you know, Walmart and Meyer and Walgreens and, and pretty much anywhere you can find a book in like huge advertising. And I feel like yeah. we should talk a little bit about David Ellis and his potential involvement in this. Well, I think that uh, I mean, I, I think it's basically like a, a really open secret because they he's the first person they thank in the acknowledgments, I think. Um, and, and they even refer to like how much help he gave them in the writing of it. Um so so this is a little inside baseball, but, you know, my understanding and, and I'm not saying that's how it happened here because I don't know how it happened here. But my understanding is when you're in a situation like this and you're ghostwriting a book or co-writing a book and your name is not on the cover, you get paid more money. You know, I think that you get less money the more uh, the more that your name is featured in, in the promo. So. So my assumption would be in a situation like this, dude probably made bank and good on him. Uh, I've actually heard he's a really nice guy. I've never met him, but I've heard nothing but good things. So, I mean, we could have run, run into him at the grocery store, Olivius, and never known. He's, yeah. he's a yep. Chicago guy, and he lives he in the suburbs. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Because um, he's a smart Chicago guy. I'll be honest. I don't have any problem with any of, like, the – especially – and this is we we traditionally on the podcast haven't had like the hugest uh, impression of James Patterson, and most of it I think is because of like some of the stuff we read and just like the way that you know I don't know. But anyway, like I, I don't I don't care who wrote it or who claims to write it. Like if they all three sat in a room for two days and just like banged it out together, or if like one person wrote it and gave it to someone else and then they like made notes. Uh, it, for me, it doesn't really matter. And like, good for this dude if. Uh, uh, I'm sure he he probably would have had a you know the opportunity to say hey I do want my name involved so um, good for him I like it so I I um I, I, yeah you know what I agree if I were him I would likely have taken the the same the same route um, and then I think you know obviously industry people um, I imagine know this to be the case too you said it's kind of like a like an open secret. Um, you know, it's just like at what point? So here's what I was hoping. And we talked about this a year ago or whatever when this was announced. I was like, man, I'd like to see Bill Clinton write a book. I'd like to see him be, you know, you know, the the other name on the cover where, where he does the, the heavy lifting um, just to see what we're getting. Um, obviously, the book didn't change any. The only thing that changes is the sales numbers, right? So this book is going to make millions and millions of dollars because of of uh, the the Clinton and Patterson names. But I was, I was um, taken back to to an incident that I think might be a little similar, and why this might <laughs> might have affected me. And I'm going to go back historically, back in about 1990. There was a musical duo named Millie Vanilli. Are you guys familiar? (laughs) Wow. Oh, yeah. Okay. So it came out that the two guys, Rob and Fab, I think were their names. And I'm honestly, I'm not like looking this up. I'm doing this from memory. um, That they were not the actual singers. So the guys you saw in the music videos and the guys you saw at award shows performing Girl, You Know It's True were not the guys who sang the music. And when that came out, you were offered a refund for, I'm going to say it at the time, the cassette yeah. like you could get like three or four bucks back for the cassette if you went to any record store that sold their their album and i feel like there's a little bit of that at play here mm. I, I mean isn't there there i'm well i'm gonna put this 
I'm going to put a stop to this right now because there's no way <laughs> there's no way that that like my fellow Americans kind of thing in the it was right before it wasn't in the epilogue. It was right at the end of the book, though, that had to have been written by Bill Clinton. I am 100 percent sure of it. You guys know what Maybe I'm talking about? Strongly directed because I mean, Clinton <laughs> also probably wasn't writing his own speeches. He probably had a speechwriter. Sure, but like, because the book the book basically ends on a speech. I don't think that's a spoiler, um, because the contents of the speech is the contents of the speech. But right. you know, it's uh, yeah, you know, dude had a speechwriter. Obama had his, Obama. I, I think is actually wrote a lot. Like my understanding is that he wrote his books, and his books were very good. Like he's a pretty talented writer, but he still had a speechwriter. But all right. Well, all right. It's, I don't know. That just carries the DNA of some Bill Clinton is, is what I'm trying to say. Oh, yeah. No, he was probably sitting there and just dictating this stuff into the phone. And I'm, I'm sure like, look, I, I met Clinton once at a, at, at a rally. It was um, it was the Democratic National Convention. I used to be a political reporter and um, and there was this big rally and he was there and I shook his hand. And, and in, in those few seconds, I was like, I get it. I get why you get away with the kind of shit you get away with because like he's one of these people that like just immediately it's like this is my best friend yeah oh i'm not arguing about how charismatic he was he was probably i mean and again more exposure um every year that we go on right so probably the most charismatic president uh, up until barack obama um, I just, I don't know. Like I said, you know, you said about Obama writing his books. I guess I wanted to see what Bill, what, what Bill Clinton chops there were for, for fiction writing. And, and I, I feel a little let down that, that I don't think that we got that. I mean, the real measure would be reading another David Ellis book. That's true. Yeah. And seeing how, how much it varies. Let's talk about Bill Clinton though. So um, does anybody else think that this TV book tour that him and Patterson decided to go on was maybe a bad idea. You guys been following any of this? Is there? I've, 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 I haven't seen specifically. Like I haven't watched any of the clips because I just don't know if I can handle them. Like from the because they look pretty cringe-inducing. But uh, but I mean, basically, like Colbert kind of nailed them to a wall and was like, you know, you're you're basically the poster child for like you know abusing your power for sexual advances in the workplace. It's like, uh oh. So yeah, every interview starts wow. out. With, so let's talk about Monica Lewinsky. I mean, essentially, that's what's been happening. And I thought to myself, like, when are they going to stop doing these appearances? And apparently, uh, no time soon. Oh, that sucks. Like, so I've seen, um, I've seen some really like cleaned up clips on news reports. Apparently, because I was I was on YouTube and I just clicked through to a couple. Um, but like, he was on. They were on today. I guess there's a TV show called Today. And that was super, like, um, it was not an attack. They were just like, oh, Bill, you wrote part of this book. And it was very chummy and stuff. And I was like, oh, these guys are just this lovable little old couple bouncing around the Internet talking about this book they wrote. So I got an, I didn't get the Colbert level of, um, you know, uh, aggression in, in things that I saw. And it just looked like they were just these, like, two goofy old dudes selling a book. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I'm sure there's some shows doing that, but I mean, there have been three or four instances now where you know, people just won't <laughs> won't get off the topic, which you know what is fair. I think in in today's climate, those questions be asked. I was just thinking, they're like, what the fuck were they thinking? Well, you know, it's interesting because I I my I, I've never done a presidential interview, but my my very rough understanding is that you know if if you're going to interview the president, you know they're they're approving what you're asking beforehand. Yeah. There's no gotcha shit. 
And the journalists are going to abide by that because if they fuck with that, then the president's never coming back right, to them. That's it, and then yeah. the White House is going to cut them off. So there's not really that risk anymore with Clinton because they have him. This is probably the only time they're ever going to want to interview him about anything ever again. So why not just go for it? Mm -hmm. Well, it, it made me think there wasn't likely to be a sequel. It was what my thought was, that this might be the last we see of Bill Clinton in public. Really? Mm-hmm. Yep. I am not getting that at all. Wow. All right. Um, so, you guys ready to do some uh, some wrap-ups on this? Yeah. All right. Uh, Rob Hart, as a guest, will allow you to go first. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, overall, I really dug it. Uh, and and part of that reason is because I've been, like, super, super deep in research mode for, for the next book I'm writing. So, I've been reading, like, nothing but really intense nonfiction. Uh, so, so, again, like, th this was my treat. This was my cupcake. Uh, and, and I'm a political junkie and I think Patterson's books are, are pretty enjoyable. So, you know, I, I actually thought the first 50% was a little slow going and then I hit the 50% mark and it took off like a rocket. Like I, I was like, like my boss would walk by, uh, uh on the day I went into the office and I was just kind of sitting there like every time he walked by and pulling out my Kindle and like trying to sneak in another chapter real quick. Um, <laughs> You know, I think it's I, I think judging it on what it is uh, just is like a, a fun diversion and a piece of escapist fiction. You know, I, I had a blast with it. Do you have a, a rating out of five stars? You know, I, I'm, I'm almost oh, to give it a star as rating an because because. Well, no, because, well, as an author, but also what happens there. So there was this big blow up online, like a lot of people started posting about it and a lot of writers were getting in fights with each other because there's this weird argument going on about how, you know, the amount of copies sold or the amount of money equates to quality and how, you know, Patterson's not quality or this or that. And, and it's weird because you know, from an enter from an entertainment standpoint, from the fact that like I wanted to actively finish the book, it's a five star book because it was like, this is really exciting and this is really cool. And I want to find out what happens, uh, you know, from a, from a craft standpoint, you know, that's a harder question to answer because I think there's so much for me to learn as a writer, but there's also a lot of it that I read that I'm like, oh, that's kind of tropey. Oh, this, this isn't great. So, you know, from, a from, from sort of like a, a, a quote-unquote literary standpoint you know it would probably be like three or four i don't know um stars star ratings totally fuck with my head <laughs> that's fair that is fair it does get harder the more books you review um so i you know read things i'm like oh man this is really good this is five stars and then like three months later i read something that's got to be like 25 percent better than that five star book that i rated and I'm like, ah, it just doesn't seem fair to give this five stars. I gave that other book five stars. You almost want to retroactively like fit them into a chart as they yeah. like go up and down in what you've read based on how good the you know the the best book you've read is. So, um, Rob, would you like to go next? Sure. Um, we have a <clears throat> kind of a, a a colored history with James Patterson. We give him a lot of shit. Um, traditionally, we've we've been very negative toward James Patterson. Um, and we've reviewed a couple things that we, we I think, rated lower than probably anything else that we've re read on the podcast. Um, we read um, Rob Hart's Scott Free, which is co-authored with James Patterson, who really enjoyed it. Um, and I'm sure that we'll dip into that a little bit after these this wrap-up and everything. Um, I went into this, <laughs> I went into reading this 
just fully aware that, um, you know, I, I couldn't bring any of my prejudices uh, about James Patterson or too much excitement because of Bill Clinton. And I was just kind of going in expecting, you know, the what, what did you say? Cupcake fiction? Yeah. 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 I, that's what I was. That's what I was expecting, and that's. I mean, it really delivered, and and it was. I I'm surprised to say how much I enjoyed reading this book. Um, I expected it to be higher quality than Zoo. I just knew that was going to be the case. <laughs> Zoo sucked, and 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 I have lots of evidence as to why. Even though um, I'm gonna I'm gonna mirror what Rob said. Uh, the beginning of the book is a little bit on the slower side. And I think it's just like he has, there's a lot of information. And I mean, it kind of emphasizes that politics on a day to day is probably a little bit tedious and, and, you know, doesn't move at the pace that you want it to, if you want to kind of call it, you know, allegorical or whatever. But, um, it, it did, um, it didn't ever hit me as being like an action thriller kind of book. I felt like it was, it was a very, it was very light on the action very light on the thriller, but I just found the story really fun and entertaining. Um, and even though we probably focus a lot on the on the criticisms of it overall, I enjoyed reading it. I was I was happy to read it, and it's just weird to be so happy about it. So <laughs> um, I'm gonna I'm gonna drop this one at it's gonna be four four stars. I uh, was expecting um, a lot of zoo as well. So I cracked open this book and I was like, I'm going to roll my eyes a lot at a lot of this. And in chapter two, um, I got my first eye roll and then like chapter eight and then chapter 19. And then that was it. Like I was pretty much done rolling um, my eyes through the rest of this book. So there are a few bits I thought were super corny. I'll mention one here. Um, We mentioned this girl that is a terrorist. Somehow I had trouble uh, reconciling a terrorist uh, young lady with somebody who uses a lot of emojis in her text messages when she's trying to, um, you know, <laughs> uh, when, when she's involved in messaging someone about a terrorist plot. So there there was a little bit of that. I was surprised at how well this flowed and um, how engaging it continued to be from from chapter to chapter and and pleasantly surprised um, because like I said our, our only other full length you know 400 plus page um, exposure to Patterson was zoo which was terrible um, this uh, this moved really well I was I was pleasantly surprised at the lack of um, politics in the book um, which I also kind of dreaded because it seems like a lot of things I read and or watch now, TV shows, movies, um, spend so much time in the political uh, you know, stratosphere that, that sometimes it takes away, in my opinion, from the actual storytelling. So uh, I'm not going to go uh, quite as high as, uh, as Mr. Olson in this, but I am going to give this three stars. Yay. So when The President is Missing Again comes out, are <laughs> we going to read it? Probably not. All right. Depends on it. Depends on who the co-author is this time. Yeah. No. Yeah. There you go. All uh, right. It was that was more fun than I expected. Um, I had a I got a text message yesterday. Friend of the podcast, John um, John Gatwood, uh, texted me. He was at uh, Target with his daughter, and there's this big cardboard like display in the center of the aisle. Um, with the book, and he jokingly sent it to me because he listens to the podcast and he knows that we joke about 
um, Patterson and stuff. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm almost done reading that. And he's like, really? <laughs> so, huh. so, yeah. Shout out, John. Now that you're listening, maybe you'll maybe you'll read it, too. Mr. Hart, you spent um, a little bit of your writing uh, time working on a book with uh, James Patterson. Is that something you can uh, talk to us a little bit about, your experience? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it was... I thought it was a pretty cool experience. It was something that came to me sort of out of the blue. Uh, I was at BoucherCon, which is sort of like the the big crime and mystery convention. And uh, I, I ran into an editor I know at Hachette, who, uh, that, and that's where uh, Patterson is. And he was like, hey, we have this new program coming up. It's going to be called Bookshots. And, you know, it's going to be co-writing with Patterson and doing like shorter novella length works. And then do you want your your name in the ring? And I was like, well, yeah, you know, I mean, I'll try anything. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm slightly more egotistical than, than Dave Ellis. You know, like I want my name on the book. So uh, <laughs> when, when I found out it was like a straight co-writing thing and, and both our names would be on it, I was like, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll give it a shot. And, and I really thought nothing would come of it. And then a couple of weeks later, they called me and, and we got into it. And, you know, I will say... Uh, I, I've always believed that even if Patterson is not really your cup of tea, there, there's something worth looking at with what he does. Like as a writer, he's worth reading because he figured something out. And to be read as widely as he is, like there's got to be something there worth replicating. And, you know, I, I really I really learned a lot working with him. Um, and, and I'll give you guys one example because this, this is my favorite example because it's a real concrete nuts and bolts piece of advice. Uh, I, in, in the start of Scott Free, there, there's this one character attacks another character uh, and, and like, you know, rams into him. And, and I described it like he was getting hit in the gut with a cannonball. And Patterson's note was, nobody knows what it's like to get hit with a cannonball. If you're going to use an analogy, it has to be something that people can understand and relate to. And it, it was like a scales falling from my eyes moment. I'm like, that makes <laughs> a lot of sense. Like, why have I never thought of it like that? And, and it seems really simple, but it really is one of those like those things that really alters how you you approach fiction writing. And so, you know, I, I always found the notes from him to be really smart and really insightful. And, uh, yeah, I, I feel like I came out of it a better writer. That's great. And, it, and I mean, that's – I mean, you have to – like you said, you have to look at the fact that, like, you know, this person, you know, basically just puts out nothing but bestsellers. He did. He cracked some code. So it would be kind of silly not to at least listen to what, what he's saying. It's a very good point. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, uh, you, you, we, we can sit here and, and have a very short debate about the literary merit of Twilight. But, <laughs> but the, the fact is, is that Stephanie Meyer figured something out. She knows something about the world that I do not. So, you know, I, and, and that's not even saying that I want to write that kind of fiction or I want to write, you know, even in that genre. But I think that just looking at it from a craft perspective, you know, it's always worth looking at what's selling to see what it is about those books that are, that are really popular. You know, yeah. like I've, I've slowly come over to shorter chapters. Uh, I used to write like very long chapters with a lot of section breaks and I've kind of, and, and I always kind of felt like that was the literary way to do it. Like chapters had to be long, 
But you know what? Sometimes a short chapter can be cool because maybe there's not a lot of information you have to convey. And, and it gives the reader a sense of accomplishment to kind of barrel through a chapter really quickly. Because if you end on a strong hook, they're going to want to move on to the next one. So, so I see the value in that. I see the value in sort of pacing and structure. And uh, yeah, it's just, you know, it's like anything else. You kind of, you pick out the little things that work for you and you just discard the rest. Um, so this book was 520 pages, I think, and it was 123 chapters. Yeah. To give, to give people an yeah. idea of, uh, and, and we, I think we mentioned that about Zoo, like how oh, yeah, quickly it, it moves because two of Two page the, chapters um, constantly, yeah. yeah. Yep. Um, you know, we give James Patterson um, a lot of shit, and a lot of it is about, you know, some of the stuff that we talked about before. Like, at, you know, what point can you, do you stop taking credit for somebody else's work? But um, back to the Stephanie Meyer argument, I, I have trouble faulting anybody who brings reading to that many people. Yeah. So, you know, from a, from a different standpoint, not what makes it sell, but the fact that somebody might be picking up a James Patterson book as their first book because people talk about them and they're always on the bookshelves and then may wind up becoming a lifelong reader is where, uh, where I think the Patterson and, and Stephanie Meyer's value um, lie as well as a number of other authors who I don't necessarily know that I would read anything from again. Um, but I still think that there's a, a very valuable contribution there when you're putting out books that, that people will pick up and read. Yeah. And, and the nice thing for me, because so my, my first five books came out from a small press. And then when you're with a small press, it's like, you know, you're, you're just fighting tooth and nail for every sale. And, and to co-write a Patterson book, I mean, I, I saw like one or two reviews on Amazon of it where it was like, hey, I like this. I'm going to go check out his other books. Right. Uh, and they're going to be really disappointed when they get to them. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it, it's at least it's getting me into sort of a different readership, which, you know, can can only be good. Yeah, there has to be some level of like, um, not clout, but like, you know, uh, momentum that you get off of that. Um, yeah, like a, like a little bit of a bump. A little bit of a mm -hmm. bump. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. Um, I will say kind of because we're talking about that, like, you know, it's just good to get people reading. Um, it, it, it kept like because I because people that I work with and people in my life know that I read a lot of books and, and review them and stuff. So they trust they blindly trust that I know what the hell I'm talking about. And they ask me for book recommendations. And of course I, I dig into like the books that I really, really, really enjoy the most that are probably like the least accessible to the general public. And then they get really mad at me for recommending this <laughs> shitty book. And it's like, no, you don't understand. This book is brilliant, but they never read books. And so it was a terrible recommendation. Um, so there's gotta be something for like, the casual reader, the every, every person kind of reader. And, and, um, so yeah, I might, I might tell people to read the president is missing instead of, you know, uh, the house of leaves. Yeah. I imagine if you're on a plane this week, you're probably going to see, um, quite a few of these because yeah. people have picked them up in like the airport bookstore, um, you know, for, for their flight and stuff. So yep. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Rob, I know you have stuff coming up, but really, you went through this kind of whirlwind experience. It seemed like with the warehouse. Um, it's 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 been weird. <laughs> yeah, tell us about that. <laughs> yeah, so uh, so this is my my first standalone book. I, I wrote this book that I've been wanting to write it for like five years, and and I've been afraid to write it because I thought I wasn't smart enough or not good enough because because it's a it's it's a heavy book and it's complicated and. 
I, I, I kind of bit down and I did it. And uh, I, I was looking for a new agent and the book got me a new agent. Uh, he loved it. He sent it out. Uh, we, we were going to go to auction where like a bunch of publishers were going to like make their best offer. And then Crown showed up. Uh, the Julian Pavia, who is the editor of The Martian and Ready Player One, basically did what's called a preempt which is they call you up and they say, we're paying this amount of money for the book and it's ours and you're canceling the auction. And, uh, and then you go sit in the corner like for five minutes and you just weep uh, <laughs> with happiness. Yeah. And then, um, and, and, and then even from there, you know, so, so the book sold and, and the timing was right because it sold right before the London Book Fair. So uh, I, I think we're up to like 18 foreign countries now. Uh, because so it, it just went into the London book fair is like this yearly event where like a lot of foreign deals get made and it, it, it got a really great reception there. And then my agent had a really good film agent that he worked with and got like, there were like five or six really solid offers. And then Ron Howard came in and was like, Oh, I would like to maybe direct this. And I was like, what the fuck is, is, is like, how is this real? Uh, cause, cause I grew up like Ron Howard is one of my favorite directors. I, I, wore out my copy of Apollo 13 when I was a kid and like I, I remember when my agent sent this to me and and like told me and I was like the, like you're lying that's that's not real agent humor yeah <laughs> yeah it's it's just it's it's been it's been super cool uh like there's a small part of me that's like like kind of still processing this because it's it's only you know the the book doesn't even come out till probably like August of next year, so we're still really early in the process. Like it's not even real yet; it doesn't even have a cover, it doesn't have a pre-order page. It's just this thing, and everyone's like, "Hey, this seems really cool," and I'm like, "Yeah, man, cool, I'll take it." Because, you know, honestly, like I thought this book was going to be unpublishable. Uh, it would be kind of spoilery to say why, but one day I'll tell you guys. And uh, yeah, I, I thought that it was going to I thought it was going to kill the book's chances, but apparently that was the thing that got people really excited. Oh, nice. Can you give us a synopsis? Yeah, so it's uh it's it's set in the near future and are are you guys familiar with Foxconn? Yeah, uh yes. Yes. Yeah, so so Foxconn and and for for people who don't know, Foxconn is a Taiwanese-based company. Uh, that makes like iPhones and stuff and what they have is these big factories with dormitories attached to them and they're like little cities and you in addition to working there you also live there and the the quality kind of sucks and they don't pay you a lot and you work very long hours so it's basically imagining that that sort of um that paradigm moved over to the US where there's this one company that's sort of completely taken over uh, the retail economy in America and they build these giant fulfillment centers. So basically like Amazon on steroids, like riding in a Ferrari and they, you know, people go and they live there and they work there and the book follows three people. It's the owner of the company who's like just been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, which, which is how the book opens. So that, that's not a spoiler. Um, and then a uh, two employees of the company, one guy whose business was ruined by them and then had to go get a job there and a woman with a secret agenda. So it's sort of these three characters and how they start sort of like interacting and orbiting with each other. And it's, uh, you know, I, I kind of set a challenge for myself with this one is I wanted to write a book that was like an issues book. I wanted to write about the American economy and how corporations are turning employees into disposable products and i wanted to do that in the language of a thriller like i wanted it to be like a really fun exciting like 
and and by the end, pretty dark book, but also have a message built into it. So it's it's basically the equivalent of of sneaking broccoli into my daughter's mac and cheese so that she'll get her <laughs> vitamins. That sounds really great. <laughs> to be honest with you, it sounds awesome. Um, that's how I get all of my broccoli, by the way. If I learned anything about the world, it's usually through well-penned fiction. You know, I, I, I'm a big fan of that. I, I think that, you know, I'm a big believer in the ability of story to seduce. And and I can I can sit here and, and talk your guys' ears off for the next two hours about labor practices and, and you know, corporate greed and corporate malfeasance and all this shit. And it's going to be really boring. But if I write a really cool story... And, and sort of frame it all in there, you know, maybe it gets people to pay attention, you know, like the uh, I, I'm not putting myself in the same category as Upton Sinclair, but, you know, real change was made because of the jungle, mm -hmm. um, which granted it wasn't the change that he was looking for. He was trying to highlight the plight of the workers. And what happened was people were like, oh, man, like our meat's contaminated. This sucks. We need better safety practices. <laughs> so um, so so it kind of didn't really go the direction he was expecting. But, you know. That's that's what a book can do is a book can change things. So I, I, I'm not saying that this book is going to change anything, but it, it's also it's exciting for me to sort of write about something that feels timely. I love it. My uh, my my favorite story to tell about learning things through book is uh, there's a book called Ishmael. It's maybe a 250 page novel about a gorilla that communicates telepathically um, to somebody it takes on as its student, which is like the dumbest premise for a book ever, but it's a book that sounds all like about the philosophy. best premise for a book ever. <laughs> <laughs> See, I, but, like I, I tell people, I'm like, this sounds terrible. I explain to it, but the, the philosophy that's involved in what Ishmael the gorilla is teaching the student is fascinating. And it's probably the most philosophy I've ever learned in my life. And again, it was through a, a, a thinly veiled fiction book, which is really kind of what you said. I would have never picked up the philosophy book. And, and read it because it sounds terribly boring and dry, but told through this kind of weird um, storyline was uh, was was fascinating. And, and I learned a lot and I've passed this book on to many people, um, you know, throughout the years. So I love that kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I just got I, I just got my fingers crossed. Um, it's 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 an immense amount of pressure. I mean, I mean, on one hand, like this, this is the dream, like that. This is what everyone kind of wants. And. I'm, I'm so excited to be here and I feel very lucky and very happy, but also now completely and utterly terrified because I feel like now there is this humongous pressure to like, first off, do my edits correctly and make it a good book and then promote it and then do another book that's like, if not as good, then better. And uh, so, yeah, it's it's kind of weird. It's like, you know, you, you kind of achieve all your dreams and you realize how much more work that kind of piles onto your shoulders and, and and again i'm not complaining because it would be stupid to complain but yeah it's it, it's a weird mix of emotion yeah and then you know down the road assuming everything goes according to plan and everything you're going to look back and you're going to be like well i guess i'm just operating at that level now like that's going to become the new normal if if you know like you know all things go according to plan yeah, you know, I, I hope so. Um, it, it's still that there are still moments where it, it hits me in a way that like just kind of kind of fills me with like an incredible amount of pride and fear at the same time. But like I just like idly remember today like, oh, like I share the same publisher with Gillian Flynn. Like, OK, cool. <laughs> That's a thing now.
Yeah. So and 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 I feel I feel you know I, I I have a very hard time seeing past the the sort of weaknesses and the flaws and the things that I write. I mean, when I finished this book, I was in Singapore. Uh, my wife was studying abroad for her master's program and I tagged along and because I, I knew I was almost done with the book and I figured like, cool, I'll just like sit in cafes and like drink beer and eat street food while she, she does that and I'll finish this book. And I, I, I was sitting in this cafe and it was great cause it was February and it was like 80 degrees and it was like, I had a beer and an iced coffee cause I was like, I can't decide. So fuck it. I'm going to get both. And like I, I finished the book and I sent it to my agent and I apologized. I was like, this thing is a fucking mess and I'm so sorry, but I feel like I've taken it as far as I can take it. And if I, I'd really appreciate another set of eyes at this point, which he had been offering to do. And, and he, he was really excited to see it. And, and, and he reads it and he writes me back and he's like, I have notes for you, but this is probably the least I've ever asked anyone to change before sending it out on submission. And I'm like, that's weird. And that doesn't make any sense to me, but okay. You know? <laughs> so like, wow. I, I still, I still feel it, it's so weird because empirically, like the evidence is there that it's a pretty good book. And yet I'm still <laughs> sort of, I, I, I'm still like a complete mess of like, you know, insecurity. But I, I, I've spoken to a couple of people who, who have like, yeah, no, that's never going to change. You're always going to feel like that. And I'm like, cool, that's nice. It has to be that, you know, as the creator of the story, like you, I clearly know more about the story than anybody else does. So what might be very apparent to you will, will likely not, not be as apparent to Rob and myself next year when, when we read this book. Um this goes back to kind of that the author also knows things that 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 knows answers <laughs> to questions they don't want to answer. We've run into this a couple of times where I've had a question about a book and I've asked the author and they're like, well, I don't know. And I'm like, no, bullshit. You know, you created this world. You created these characters. You know, you're just not saying so that's kind of, you know, but I mean, I think that goes hand in hand. Right. So you can see you can see the the things that maybe didn't work only because you have so much more story in your head than we'll ever get on the page. Yeah. And, and you really just, no matter what you do, you can't experience it on the same level as a reader because it's, it's yeah. sort of, it's, it's that it's, it's having the story in your head, but it's also knowing exactly what's going to happen at every step of the way and, and how those things are playing into sort of the overarching arc of the story where you can't surprise yourself. Like you kind of surprise yourself a little bit as you're putting it together. But you know, I'm also, I'm a pretty vicious outliner. I really need that in front of me before I can get to work. I like, I need to know how the story fits together. So, you know, I knew where I was going the whole time and, and there, there's sort of, there, there are two twists at the end and, uh, they, I, it was really exciting for me to hear from people, from from my agent, from the editor, from the other editors who read it, from from other people who've read it so far, that they really were taken by surprise by those things, because that's really really hard to do is sort of build those twists in and and do it in such a way that you're kind of not giving it away, but you're keeping it present enough in a reader's minds that they don't forget that it's there, you know, which, which mm -hmm. uh, really is is another thing that like Patterson's really good at that. Uh, Jeffrey Deaver's really good at whose stuff I just love. He writes these uh the the Lincoln Rhyme books, which are like forensic detective books. And um yeah, man, thrillers are fucking hard because you have to it's this push and pull between giving the reader just enough information but not too much information. Well, we were excited like crazy for you when the news kind of broke mm -hmm. and um it was nice to kind of 
have a direct avenue with you to kind of just drop a note and say, hey, by the way, will you still do this review with us? Because like, because <laughs> imme- <laughs> immediately you went from like being, oh, it's Rob Hart to being like, oh, Rob's a big shot now. So um, it, it was nice to still like maintain this relationship. But then also like um, when I'm at, I was like, I can't remember. I was I was messaging with you about, I think, setting up this um, this um, review tonight. And I had like, someone came over at work to talk to me about something. I was like, oh, oh just a minute. And there and and so I put I, I bounced them away from me for a minute and then later I was like oh sorry I was me- I was messaging with my um like big shot writer friend from New York and they're like ooh <laughs> <laughs> so, I I am I am I, I want you guys to make me a promise uh, both of you I really want you to promise me this if I ever act like a prick just smack me in the back <laughs> please I mean we can do I, that I think we can yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, no, you, you guys have free reign to do that. I, I've been telling people that I had I, I, another podcast reached out to me and these are two good buddies of mine. And they were like, you know, if you still want to come on, if you're not too busy, I'm like, guys, like you're my pals, <laughs> like nothing changed. Like, which is the other thing about this that that, that is kind of weird because no, everything changes and nothing changes. Yeah. You know, I mean, like my yes, the 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 level of this deal has been life changing for me and my family. And, and it's great. And, and I'm very excited at now the future I'm going to be able to provide for my daughter and just, you know, the the the, the comfort that we get out of all of this. And, and that's nice. And, and it's nice to also, again, sort of get to that that dream point, that thing that you fantasize about. That's like a lottery fantasy where you think about it and then you, you put it out of your head because you think it's never going to happen. And, mm-hmm. uh, and that's great, but it's like, but still, you know, like I, my daughter was being a lunatic today and, and I was running around with her all day and, and I had to clear out half the basement because we have the Vietnam vets coming to pick up, you know, um, charity donations and, you know, we're, we're doing work in the backyard for the summer. And, and like, so it, it's not like the, the whole world change, like everything still kind of feels the same, you know, sure. which is nice. But uh, it, it, it's just it's 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 weird. But yeah, I, I really it's really important to me to not be a prick. You know? Well, like, I, I don't want to. Be. <laughs> I'll tell you from our perspective. And, and I think that like knowing someone for a long duration uh, plays into this a lot. And Livia's might disagree with me, but doing this podcast, we just hit seven years, which is kind of insane. And um, so we met a lot of these people early on and we did all this like relationship building and these people went from being like kind of colleagues to more like friends and then we're watching these you know like we hit kind of you know where we're comfortable and and things aren't really growing as much and it was felt kind of like a slump but then all of a sudden like these people that we've known for years are making these big advances in their career and it's because we've known them so long we get to kind of watch that happen and it's so rewarding to see someone go from you know, maybe starting out, I'm not necessarily talking about you, but like the people that we know, um, starting out indie presses, you know, not really sure how successful they're going to be to like making a break. And even though we didn't do anything, we get the satisfaction of knowing like these people that we know that we're friends with and stuff like start are starting to realize some of their dreams. Yeah. You know, and, and there's something that's really cool that, that makes me happy, which is, you know, there, there's going to be a lot of promo opportunities as we're getting close to the warehouse and, and it's going to be really fun and it's going to be really exciting. But like, you're the guys I'm excited to talk to because you're my buddies, you know, like, like yeah, we can buddy. have a real conversation. Yeah. Like we can have a real <laughs> conversation where, where we know each other and we have a history and, and that's slightly more interesting to me than like whatever, you know, one hit reporter is going to come out to do a quick piece on whatever, 
you know, right. the, this to my mind has more value for me because like, it doesn't feel like I'm working right now. It feels like we're just bullshitting and, and that's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. right. While we're talking about friends and change and all that stuff, uh, more immediately, the final Asha McKenna book is, uh, is about a month away now. Yeah. You have some, some emotional ties to Ash that you want to get out here on the podcast? Yeah, man, it's uh, it's it's weird to say goodbye, you know, because I really loved this series and the series. I mean, it's a series about an amateur private investigator who's kind of growing up and 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 coming into into becoming a man. But a lot of the book was about me working out my own shit as I was growing up because the I, I started writing the first one when I was in my twenties, and uh, I feel really good about where I left the series. I feel like the, so the last book brings him home and like some of the previous books, he had been traveling around the world and the, it's nice to have him home. And, and I kind of feel like Potter's field is the book that I wanted New York to be. Uh, it feels more complete and it feels like more of a complete thought. So I, you know, there, there's something really satisfying about ending it on my own terms and feeling good about that. And, and there's some, there's a part of me that like kind of wants to, like I, I, I did not tell my publisher that I would never write another one again, you know, because I think it was um, uh, Lahane did that with the what was it the the something in Janeiro? Like he had a series that like he stopped writing and then came back to years and years later. Like I would not be opposed to doing another one if if I thought it was a good story. But uh, yeah, you know, it's just it's it's nice to it's nice to sort of put a button on this and just to move on to the next phase. Well, anybody who's listened to the podcast for a while knows that we reviewed the first three. Um, and then we kind of, we always falter with the, like, how long do we continue reading in a series? And there's no really good answer for that. Um, but from what I've read, I highly recommend anybody that's listening, check out the series because it's very entertaining and very well done. And um, you, you're just going to enjoy it. So, yeah, I'm hoping that. Um, maybe if we can squeeze in some extra time, we'll get the other two taken care of and, and have read the entire series. It's, it, you know, it's, it's hard with series, uh, because when, when you're writing that many books, it's like when the first one comes out, it's like really exciting and it's so cool. And, and, and like, you've got all this stuff planned. And then by the time you got to like the fifth book, you feel like you're inviting people to a Tupperware party. <laughs> that's an interesting you know, way to look at it yeah it's it, it's a lot to ask of a reader and and i've been very very lucky in in that there have been some people who have read all the books and they're very excited about this character and they're very excited about this journey but you know i also i i it was important to me that each book be able to stand on its own and if someone just wants to pick up one or or kind of jump around like they can do that too um i uh you know, it's a five book series and I kind of modeled it on um, the Joe Pitt books by Charlie Huston, which it was a uh, it was a hard boiled vampire detective series. And, and it's so good. It's it just unbelievably good. And I actually fucked up and read them out of order. And, and I kind of like that. Hmm. I did that because they still really held up, even though I, I, I was an idiot and didn't know how to, like, actually read books correctly. But, uh, <laughs> you know, like that, that that was nice. And, and so I wanted to be able to do that where it was like you can kind of take them on your on their own or you can kind of see the overarching story. And and either one was was a, a worthwhile experience. Um, I remember reading the first couple of those and, and I'm thinking pre-internet. So I think it was probably harder to figure out what, what a series was than, than it is now. Um, but I'm going to respectfully disagree with you. I think when you have a great character, I don't think it's asking a lot of the readers. I think it's probably harder to pick up new readers. 
um, as you know, as a series gets longer. But I mean, God, there's books I've read 18, 20 books with the same character in the same series and, and you know, and, and appreciated um, all of them um, because they were well done. So I don't know that, you know, necessarily you're asking a lot of readers. I think the readers that are dedicated to that character and that love your work will continue to read them. But I do see where it might be a little more difficult to pick up new people when you're, you know, 10 books into something. Yeah, I, th- I actually I think I got more of that reaction when I was like by the time the third book came out and then people felt kind of intimidated because they're like, oh, there's already three. I haven't even read the first one yet. And I'm like, right. it's cool, man. Like, just buy them. That's all that matters. Yeah, you don't really. have to read them. Just buy them. Yeah. yeah. It's very, honest. very good point. Yes. Um, but yeah, just, like just put them on your shelf. Even if they read the first, they can make the decision then. So you're only asking them to read one book. It's up to yeah, them whether, exactly. they, whether they want to continue the process. Yeah. Yeah. So that's yeah, but I understand what you're saying. That's going. Kind of, I don't know, guys. What else have we got going on? Uh, how are you guys doing? <laughs> no one ever does that to us. I don't yeah. know. To... Um, I don't know how to answer this question. We're good. We're okay. I think. Are we okay, Rob? I don't know. Where are we at as a couple? Are we good? Uh, yeah, we're good. All right. Um, all right. Life is good. We actually. Uh, all right. So since since you asked that question, I do. I feel like I have to give some substance like something that um it makes sense to talk about um in 2017 we had a little bit of a dip in the number of books that we read um it was pro- it was absolutely our lowest quantity of books in the in the 7 years we've been doing this um and I'm happy to say for the calendar year of 2018 so far um not even halfway through the year we're just like 500 pages behind all of 2017 nice so not that bad. feels good. That feels good. And I know that we're not planning to do the lazy summer of podcasting like we have in previous years. So uh, hopefully, um, hopefully we'll we'll get back on track to the good 30 to 40 books a year that we were doing kind of in our heyday. So that's I'm actually really proud of that. Um, I know Livius and I have both felt pretty crappy over the last couple of years about like this serious decline and the number of books we're reading for the podcast. So that's um, that's probably the best news I have right now. Indeed. I agree. Yeah. Rob, is there anything else you'd like to plug or talk about before we let you go? Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, I did just finish. Uh, you know, I, I feel compelled to, to plug other people's books. Um, I did just finish reading uh, The Line That Held Us by David Joy. Uh, and I, I've never read David Joy before. This is his third book. Um, and he, he seems like a really cool guy. He's like a, like a Southern rural noir kind of guy. And the galley came in to the bookstore the other day and I picked it up and uh, I really dug it. Like, like I'm still kind of chewing some of the book over like later on. So I would say that keep an eye out for David Joy's new book. Rob, thanks again for uh, for co-reviewing a book. So a lot of times we ask people to come on and we're like, hey, give us an hour of your time so that we can, you know, just ask you a bunch of questions. And, and, and basically it's like a lazy week for us if we do that. But, man, you put in the work. You read a 500-page book um, just to, to, you know, to help us talk about it. So we greatly appreciate that. Well, thank you for having me. It was uh, always a pleasure. Congratulations on all your recent and continued success. And uh, can we can we expect you back for the warehouse? Yeah, absolutely. Excellent. All right, everybody. You heard that, everybody. <laughs> um, oh, no, they're going to hold me to it. Yeah. I'm you know, just going to keep repeating that over and over again, like leaving you voicemails of you saying that. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I will be there. <laughs> awesome. 
We're not sure what's coming up uh, next week, but uh, we expect it'll be another book. So uh, come back in roughly seven days. Until then, I'm Livia Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. Keep reading.